0: Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. This subject fascinates everyone everywhere because it affects everyone everywhere. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Medical malpractice affects patients, families, nurses, doctors, midwives, healthcare institutions, the associations that define medical standards, lawyers, and the general public. Each month, we'll be looking at the malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject today we're back here with Richard Halpern. You probably heard him talking last time as we went over some of the legal concepts and challenges around medical malpractice lawsuits. Today we're back here again to go a little bit deeper on this subject and to talk about how when a patient or family feels that there's been an adverse event that's caused injury to them and they want to seek the help of a lawyer or perhaps explore whether or not they have a legitimate and viable medical malpractice lawsuit. What does that look like? What does it cost? How do they find a lawyer who's qualified to take the case or consider their case? And then what does it look like once they decide to take the case on? So let's start just with that question. Richard, when someone walks into your office and has questions or concerns about the medical care that they've received and wondering if they have a malpractice lawsuit, how does that even start?
1: Well, it starts before they even get to my office. Most of the people don't pass the first stage, which is the phone call. We get, as you can appreciate, hundreds of calls a year from people who have bad outcomes. And we have to try to filter those down to a manageable number. If I saw everybody, I'd have no time for anything else. It takes a long time to interview a patient uh, about any claim they may want to advance against doctors and nurses. So we have to tease out the ones that don't have merit sometimes just right over the phone, not necessarily easy to do. Sometimes we tease them out because the damages aren't big enough.
0: Uh, and what are other reasons that they wouldn't get past the phone call? What happens in that first conversation where you decide or not to go further?
1: Not that patients are doctors or nurses, but often I'll ask a patient, what is the criticism that you have of your nurse or doctor? Where did they, where did they go wrong? If the criticism is bedside manner, we don't sue over bedside manner. And that's often, you'd be surprised how often we hear about that. My doctor was rude or my nurse was rude and I want to do something about it.
0: I'm not surprised at that because in healthcare, I've had that threat thrown at me several times. People are angry and upset about something that's happened as simple as the doctor showed up late or their pills were not on time. And they will threaten to sue you in that situation. And for years, I lived in some level of fear until I learned more about litigation and the, you know, the elements that you talked about in the last, the last podcast, the elements that have to be proven, you know, in the absence of any damages, for instance, there is no lawsuit. So that's a really good point to bring up right here.
1: And nurses and doctors should never live in fear of threats from their patients if... There's no excuse for bad bad bedside manner and patients should be treated with respect, obviously. And nurses and doctors who do treat their patients with respect and who see them on time likely can avoid a lot of aggravation if they do that.
0: Yeah, I understand that. But, you know, I mean, it isn't always possible. You're dealing with people all day, every day, and things, healthcare issues don't go as they do. But anyway, that is not what we're here to talk about today. We're talking about a patient who does feel aggrieved in some way through the healthcare system, and um, to the point that they've decided to seek legal advice. How do you sort out what is a meritorious lawsuit and what's not?
1: I have to have some sense from the patient first of all about where they see the error, what their complaint is. Not that that's going to drive the direction of the lawsuit. When they get they come in the door, the first thing I do with each new potential client, is I do an in-depth and chronological review of the, their health care and what happened. So we run through it, the involved parties, the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, and I get their story, and I have them tell me their story. Sometimes I have to keep it in small bites and keep it chronological to make sure that I understand everything that's gone on. With some people, I will even ask for a chronology of events prior to that first meeting in order to get a more comprehensive understanding about what their complaint is. In some cases, I'll even get their records in advance so that I can be more informed at that first meeting about what happened with the patient. They will take me very carefully through the facts as they see them. They'll take me through the areas where they are critical of the nurses or the doctors or the hospital, and I will interrogate them a little bit at that point about what happened and try to focus them on sometimes where I see the criticism might lie. Uh, often, the the clients do not have a good understanding about where the error occurred. They know that there's been a bad outcome. They know it was unexpected, and they want to know why. So it's common that a patient will come to me and say, I've had this bad event. I don't know why. I can't get the answer from my doctor. Why? Nobody's told me what happened. How do we find out? What do we do?
0: I can only imagine that that first visit with the patient uh, is difficult because of the tragic circumstances and sometimes tragic outcomes and the devastation, perhaps, that a medical error has wreaked on their life. Any comment on that and how you separate yourself from that or deal with that that difficult, sad case in front of you?
1: It's particularly difficult with with profound injury or in death cases. It's very, very difficult for the family to come in. It's very difficult for them to talk about it. But uh, as a lawyer, I have to be businesslike, and I often tell them that in advance. I'm going to be very clinical and businesslike in how I look at your case and how I respond to what you're telling me. I often tell them that it isn't enough that you've had a bad outcome. I've really got to get to the bottom of it and find out whether or not your bad outcome is as a result of somebody else's neglect. Mm. Is there somebody that we can point the finger at who ought to be accountable for the harm that's been caused to you? So it's a difficult conversation, but they understand that I I need to be businesslike. I need to be clinical about it. And often in that first interview, we have more questions than we do answers
0: what types of questions
1: well the question is uh, what happened Uh, when did it happen how did it happen and who's responsible for making that happen we probably can't answer the bulk of those questions without the benefit of expert advice or retaining nurses and doctors to advise us on these things but after that first interview i think what we need to do is identify what are the questions that need to be answered in order to determine whether or not that patient has a viable claim against somebody. We we never know at that first interview because I'm not a doctor, I'm a lawyer. A lawyer with a lot of experience in medical matters, but I'm not a doctor. And I tell the clients that even if I express a view to them about what I think happened to them, uh, they can't rely on my view until it's backed up by appropriate medical experts.
0: And does that first visit to you cost? I've talked to, Dozens, maybe hundreds of people in my lifetime who said they don't ever call the lawyer because it's, got, it's just going to cost too much money and they can't afford it. Talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, so uh, no, I never charge a fee for the initial interview with any client. It's always free and it may be an hour and it may be two hours, but it's, it's always free. Depending on the case, I will even review the records for many clients after that first interview without charging them a fee And when you for say time,
0: records, you're talking about the medical records from the hospital or the clinic or the institution?
1: Right. So the client will leave the office, So they'll sign an authorization for the release of their medical records. I'd need those records to fill in the gaps in the interview. There's lots of gaps in that interview. There's lab results and there's x-ray results and there's all kinds of things. And then there's a factual scenario in the records that is not contained in what the client relayed to me in our initial meeting. So I want to get those records and fill in the gaps. And sometimes uh, it takes months to get the records. And when I do get the records, the cost of getting the records sometimes is a a cost to the client. It depends on the case. Then I will review those records very, very, very carefully, particularly birth trauma cases, which is much of what I do. Uh, I can read those records as well as many of my experts, and I can really formulate for myself a view about whether or not the case is worth pursuing.
0: And what are you looking for?
1: Well, I'm looking for uh, some explanation about what happened to the patient, the child, in, in these cases. Uh, we start with neuroimaging, so we look at the, what happened to the baby's brain as, an, as a pattern of injury that might be associated with something that went wrong during birth. And then I look at the conduct of the nurses and the doctors during labor and delivery. Uh, did they monitor the baby properly? Did they appreciate what was happening to mother and baby during labor and delivery? Did they respond appropriately to the things that were happening? And try to sort of formulate my own theory uh, about what happened and why before I engage an expert. And what I do when I review these records, and it could take me four or five days to complete my review of the records because I do a very careful Excel spreadsheet. I analyze it very carefully. Before I retain the expert, I'll sit down with the client for a second interview, and I will say, look... I now have the records. Here's what I found. Here are the issues that I've identified. Do those issues match up with what you think happened during your care? And I make sure not only that I've identified the issues that are important from a legal perspective, but I've covered off the patient's concerns about what happened and why. And and we make sure that we have the same story before I then take that story to an expert to confirm the theory that we have of what happened and why it happened.
0: And how often do those two stories jive?
1: There, it's not unusual for the patient to disagree with some of the things that are in your hospital record or nursing chart. It's not unusual. What we do find is that the patient actually is able to fill in gaps that might be in the records. So if the nurses and doctors haven't kept thorough records, Uh, There wasn't a conversation between mother and doctor about threats to the baby. Did I need a C-section? Is this the way my labor should have been managed? There's often a lack of that sort of detail. And I get the clients to fill in those details. It's very important because uh, the the patient will recall these things as a significant event in their lives, provided they come, they retain us early enough that their memories haven't, faded, and we fill in the gaps, important gaps in the records through the patient.
0: Is there perhaps a process that they would have gone through before they went to you, like if they have questions or concerns about the labor and delivery or any event in healthcare? Um, Before someone comes to you, has there usually or typically been a hospital inquiry or complaints to professional bodies, or what's what's the preamble to them seeking your assistance? I
1: think the first line of inquiry is the patient asking the doctor, the treating people, what happened. And patients do that, and they get varying degrees of satisfaction from that process. Some of the doctors are very forthright and give the patient the information they need. I think those doctors who are forthright actually avoid the aggravation of litigation going forward. Sometimes the answers that they get are vague or they're not understood. Uh, Sometimes they don't get the answers at all. There may be investigations by the hospital as well, by hospital administration and quality assurance. They will look into what happened and often communicate with the patient about what happened. And I've seen different degrees of disclosure to my patients. Some hospitals are better at this than others. Again, uh, good disclosure, frank and honest disclosure by doctors, nurses, and hospitals, I think is another way to avoid litigation on on the part of a patient. Although when there's been a bad outcome with serious consequences, it doesn't matter how much disclosure there is, the patient should pursue litigation if somebody's accountable for significant losses. And the, why do you
0: say should there? Why should they?
1: Well, because the burden of a disability is a huge financial burden. Mm-hmm. If you have been, you or your loved one has been substantially injured and you can't work if you're a breadwinner or you'll never work if you're a child, or if you have care needs that are extraordinary and that will go on for years and years and years, there is an enormous burden on the family, and they're going to need some respite from that. Mm -hmm. So in cases where there are real economic losses and real disability for which somebody else is accountable, I think it's only reasonable on a principled basis that people pursue those who cause their loss.
0: Well, and I can only imagine that in the birth injury cases that the child will far outlive the parents. So there's that, that future issue as well, when the parents can no longer support the child.
1: And so a profoundly injured child, say with cerebral palsy, is an example. A lot of these babies have cerebral palsy. They have motor dysfunction. They have cognitive and learning disabilities. They are completely dependent around the clock. On their family members and it's an enormous burden on the family when we are able to succeed in those cases we are able to get the family significant relief they are entitled to then purchase those extraordinary care needs on in the marketplace and get some relief from what is an enormous difficult burden so i think it's it's very important for parents in particular of children who have suffered disability through medical negligence to get that kind of help. It's life-altering. These things happen not just to the child, it happens to the family.
0: Of course, of course. And I think from the nursing perspective, because again, that's my background, as you know, you know, when you're looking at discharging someone from hospital, there's a care plan. Like, what is it going forward? What does this patient need for community services, social services, and support? And money is a part of the care plan. I mean, the finances is a big part of the pie. Um, to really take care of someone going forward. So we're at the point where the patient has come in, you've had the discussion, you've reviewed the medical records and then set them down and looked at discrepancies and look at the legal principles that you're dealing with that we talked about in the last podcast. What happens next?
1: We then go to our experts to find out whether or not the case has merit. I always counsel other lawyers to do that kind of work very early in the piece i do not want my client to be involved in the stress of litigation unless we know that we have a case that's worth pursuing and the only way that we can truly be satisfied that the case is worth pursuing is if we get really quality advice from highly trained and skilled experts about the merit of the case if my experts support my theory of the case In other words, they agree that the care was not up to standard. If they agree that it caused the harm that my patient has suffered, then I'm happy to recommend that my client proceed with a lawsuit. On the other hand, if the expert is not supportive and we are prepared to rely on that expert, that's a big if in a lot of cases, because sometimes experts don't get it right. But if we're prepared to rely on that expert advice that the case isn't meritorious, I will not drag a patient through the trauma of a lawsuit that does not have merit. And I'm not, I owe it to my profession and I owe it to the administration of justice, not to start cases that don't have merit.
0: Well said. Um, Back to your if the experts get it right. How do you know, I mean, you said earlier, you're a lawyer, not a doctor. How do you know whether or not the experts get it right and what do you do when you suspect that they don't?
1: I'm a lawyer and as a lawyer, I'm an advocate. And I'm an advocate for my client's interests. As an advocate, I don't simply rely on doctors to tell me what happened. If a patient comes in with a particular medical issue, I make sure that I'm extremely well informed about the medicine on that issue. I do my own research. I have an enormous library of medical textbooks, of medical journal articles. And I will review the medicine even though I'm not a doctor, in the context of the facts of that case and formulate my own gut-feeling, logical sort of approach to the case. What's my theory of the case? What do I think happened from a medical perspective? Not just standard of care, but causation. And when I prepare in this way, so I know my records extremely well, I've taken a look at the medical literature, I've looked at all the recent journal articles on point. When I consult with my expert, I don't just listen. I also talk to my expert and I test what my expert is saying. Even if the uh, expert is for or against me, I still want to test what the expert has to say. Because I'm advising my client on whether or not to go ahead with a lawsuit, relying on what this expert says. So I better make sure that I can rely on it too. Remember, I fund these lawsuits going forward, so I rely on the expert as well. So I take my knowledge of the medicine and I make sure that I have confidence in what my expert has said so that I can take it back to my client and have my client make an informed decision on whether or not they want to be embroiled in litigation.
0: You talked just a minute ago about your theory of the case. Can you give me an example or give everybody an example of the theory of a case that you would develop perhaps in a birth injury case?
1: Sure. So birth injury cases often are cases where uh, we argue that there should have been intervention of some kind before the baby was born. And the reason for intervention is based on clinical events that are happening during labor and delivery. So for example, the way that doctors and nurses measure the health of a baby during labor is by monitoring the fetal heart rate. The fetal heart rate is an indication about whether or not the baby is well oxygenated. It's an indication about whether the baby is coping well with what is a very stressful thing for the baby. Labor is very stressful for the baby. And we also look at Information about uterine activity, what's happening with the contractions, are, are the, is the pattern something that the baby can tolerate? And we look at all the clinical events that happen during labor that speak to fetal coping or fetal stress during labor. And I try to identify the point where I feel that things started to break down for the baby based on all of that clinical information, including labor progress as well. Long labors are problematic. We even go back pre-labor in in situations where there are maternal health conditions that might affect the baby's ability to cope with labor. For example, babies who are, are small or mothers who have, say, hypertension or diabetes. These are all sorts of things that may make it more difficult during the labor progress. So I try to get some sense of whether or not there was an indication during labor that there might be a problem with fetal oxygenation. And uh, I try then to build a theory on what should have happened. And usually it's not just black and white. It isn't, I should have intervened then. I should have delivered the baby at that point in time. That's a very difficult concept in birth trauma cases. It's more like I should have recognized that the baby was under stress and I should have taken steps to help relieve that stress. I should have turned off oxytocin, which is a drug that increases the intensity of contractions. I'm now speaking as the nurse. I should have... I should have given the mother oxygen, I should have stopped the mother from pushing and allowed the baby to recover. There's all kinds of things that we can do to preserve fetal well-being during labor, and I have to see whether those things were done. So I've, I developed a theory of that, and I develop a theory about how the baby got injured, usually from newborn records or neuroimaging, images of the baby's brain, mm-hmm. uh, data of that, uh, about the newborn tells us something about what happened during labor and delivery.
0: So you've got a good sense now at this point you've reviewed the records in, in detail and talked to the family. Um, what else uh, or what other steps do you take or considerations are there before you decide you've had your experts weigh in and decided if they're credible or not or if you're going to go with the information they've given you. What other steps are you before are there to go before you actually file a claim which we'll talk about in the next podcast, the steps in the process of a lawsuit. But what's the rest of your decision making process before you go forward?
1: Provided I believe the damage is to be sufficient to justify the expense of a lawsuit. When I have a encouraging expert report in hand, or two or three, usually it's more than one. When I have that report in hand that suggests to me that the case has merit, it's worth pursuing, I then sit down with my client. We have a lengthy discussion about that report, about what the expert has to say, about my feelings about the chances of success in the case. I explain the process that my client is going to have to go through, how long it's going to take to get it done, and then I ask for my client's instructions to proceed, and Mm -hmm. we start a lawsuit.
0: Thank you for that. That's a fascinating beginning, and when we come back, let's talk then about the process of a lawsuit and what the next steps look like. Sounds great. Thank you very much for being here again.
1: You're welcome.